Welcome to Leukemia Cast. I am your host, Deirdre O'Kane. Leukemia Cast is a five-part series for you to hear all about life with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, getting insights from patients, their families, and their healthcare professionals through their personal stories. Leukemia Cast has been developed by Children's Health Ireland (CHI) at Crumlin, with the support of Servier Laboratories Ireland. In this episode, we talk to Professor Owen Smith, who is Professor of Paediatric and Adolescent Medicine at Our Lady's Children's Hospital, Crumlin, and the Chief Academic Lead to the Children's Hospital Group. You're very welcome, Professor Owen Smith. Thank you. Welcome to this podcast. Thank you for talking to us. I want to start with asking, can you tell us how the treatment of ALL has improved over the years? Oh, right. Big question. So, um, yeah, it's been an incredible story, actually. And it starts off back in the 1930s, 1940s. And it happens not in cancer medicine, but it happens in um, vitamin medicine. So a lady called Lucy Wills, who was a graduate of the Royal Free Hospital in London, went off to India as part of the empire. And she was a haematologist. She was interested in blood cells and then, you know, haemoglobin and things like that. And she came across a, a group of women whose haemoglobins were low and she couldn't find out the reasons why. So what she did then was she looked at her bone marrows and her bone marrows were, you know, very similar to what we would call pernicious anemia. And pernicious anemia is due to B12 deficiency. But these patients were replete of B12. They had loads of B12. So she started looking to find the cause of it. And basically what these women were doing, these were vegan vegans and they didn't eat a lot of foliage, greenery, vegetables. So that's where folate comes from. It comes from the term foliage. Yeah. So uh, anyway, between the jigs and the reels over a number of years, then they found the missing link, which was folic acid. So when they gave folic acid back to these women, their hemoglobins came normal again. So that's where it all starts. And then it moves on then from India across to Boston. And in Boston in the mid 1940s, a guy called Sidney Farber, You've probably heard of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, probably the top two or three cancer institutes in the world. Works out of Harvard University and Boston Children's Children's Hospital. So Farber was particularly interested, was when he looks down the microscope at children with leukemia, similar findings to those women with, you know, uh, folate deficiency. Mm. So he... He gave these leukemia cells in the Petri dish, in the lab, gave them folic acid, and he noticed that they grew faster. So instead of just walking away from that, like he was expecting these cells to become more mature when you add the vitamin back, like if you're vitamin deficient, you get better, right? Mm. So he then asked a, a, a fantastic chemist from India as well, but working at Harvard, could he develop or produce an antifolate? So he produced an antifolate, and that drug was called aminopterin, and he gave it to several children with acute leukemia in Boston Children's Hospital. And miraculously, those children went into leukemic remission. First time ever that a drug was shown to cure a cancer, not cure all of those children relapsed. But it was the first time ever that we could show that giving a drug to a patient with acute leukemia had a fantastic, profound effect in pushing them into remission. All of those children, unfortunately, relapsed. But that was the start of chemotherapy for ALL. 
And when, when was that? When are we talking about now? So we're talking around 1946-47, but the seminal paper was published in October-November of 1948 in the New England Journal of Medicine. Okay, and we've come a long way now. We've come an awful long way since then. So then over the next, um, say, maybe 10 years, then newer drugs were developed. That aminopterin, by the way, became metotrexate. Metotrexate is one of our staple drugs for ALL now. We still use it in bucket loads and we use it across all cancers. So that's where it starts. Is that a form of chemotherapy? Metotrexate. It's a form of chemotherapy, yeah, and it kills cancer cells, but it also kills immune cells as well. So it's used in a lot of other conditions like immune disorders, you know, like rheumatoid and things like that. So it's been used right across the board. Next 10 years, newer drugs start to uh, become available. And the group again at Sloan Hospital, it's now called Sloan Kettering in New York, Sloan Hospital, Joe Birchnell, then gets his hands on what we call thiopurines or, or six-mercaptopurine and thioguanine. And he starts giving these children this drug as well. So he's using it with the metotrexate. So we're developing combination chemotherapy. So if you look at any of the children here or any of the adolescents having chemotherapy, they have what we call polychemotherapy at least 12 to 14 different drugs as part of their regimen. So then in the NCI in Washington then in the 60s, two guys called Fry and Freireich then started to escalate the dosing of these drugs, but they found that they were impairing the function of certain organs in these patients, kidney function, gut, heart to a certain degree, and also the bone marrow. So they were failing in the bone marrow, and so they invented developing platelet transfusions, blood transfusions, and also supportive care in terms of antibiotics. Yeah? So we started then to start increasing the cure rates in the 1960s, 1970s, and we were up to around 20%, 25%. So one in four of these children are now becoming cured from their acute lymphoblastic leukemia. The seminal study, however, is published in 1971 in blood, in the journal Blood, by Don Pinkel and his group from St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in Memphis. Most of the children who didn't survive, the 75% of those children who didn't survive, the one in, you know, the three and four, they mostly died from relapse around their central nervous system, around their brain, or in their bone marrow. So what Don Pinkel did was he addressed that whole area. So he irradiated the brain to prevent the leukemia from coming back, but also invented stages of treatment, what we call now induction, consolidation, maintenance chemotherapy. For ALL, it usually takes between two and a half to three and a half years for completion of therapy, but also irradiating the brain to prevent the leukemia from coming back. That's what he did. And it was his fifth protocol called Total Therapy 5, published in 1971, showed a 50% overall survival. That's 1971. Amazing. Like, is that, has, that been, has there been a, as big a step since, or is that the biggest breakthrough? That is the biggest single breakthrough, I would suggest. We're about to get a bigger breakthrough in the next five to ten years, and we can come back to that later on. But the problem with that therapy was CNS irradiation, radiation to the brain of young children, And unfortunately, we found out from prospect of following those patients' studies that a lot of these patients, their neurocognition started to fall off. They weren't as bright as they should have been. And then some of the other drugs, the toxicities like bone disease, heart disease, 
stuff like that. So we needed to start becoming cleverer around that, that mm-hmm. time to see can we do different things. And then the biggest step next came in the 1970s, 1980s, when the Germans started to use what we call intensification. So in other words, you're diagnosed with leukemia, you're given 21, 28 days of treatment in hospital, and then they allowed you to go home and they brought you back when all of your cancer were recovered, when you were feeling well, and then they would start again. The Germans said, hang on a second. What we need to do is to hit the leukemia when it's most vulnerable, when the patient is starting to regenerate more blood. And so they came in with intensification early on. And 50% goes up to 65%. So this is in the 1980s. This is fantastic. That's huge improvement. Huge improvement. Unfortunately, at that stage, we were treating all of these children and young adolescents with the same protocol, with a single protocol. And we know everybody is not the same. Every child, every patient is so different. Every patient is not. Absolutely. And we know it now more than ever that every leukemia is unique. It's like your fingerprint. So this is what I say to mums and dads every time I see them. Your child's leukemia is like no other leukemia. Yes, it's that's important, isn't it? Child. Because people are inclined to deep dive and Google and all do exactly. all those things that you advise them not to do because there's no point. You're exactly an individual. Exactly. And then in the 1980s, because a lot of the groups around the world, so-called, you know, collaborative groups like North America, Britain, Ireland, the, the, the Germans, the French, We all met together in Rome, nice place to meet, and looked at a lot of the data from different groups. And what started to fall out of the data was we could risk stratify. So we found that girls were doing better than boys, but that's not uncommon in life. Women tend to do better than men in lots of things. They tend to live longer and uh, men tend to live less long than women, but also So the age of the patient is also very important. If you're less than one years of age, you do incredibly badly compared to over one and less than 10. So, you know, the age that peaks to the best outcomes is between four and six. And we also found out from the Rome uh, meeting that white cell count, the amount of leukemia present in the child, tumor burden in other words, is very important. And that was taking the cutoff at 50. Right. So all of a sudden, then we found out we could risk stratify patients into good and bad actors. So girls were better than boys. And that's why boys were given an extra year of treatment to try and bring them back on track. The white cell count of greater than 50 meant that you were eligible for more intensive treatment. And um, yeah, so that's where risk stratification starts to come in. So it's really, really uh, profound that, that those things happened during the 1980s. And can I can we can we jump to 2022 or is that too much of a, a leap? I just think it would be interesting to hear how, how we've moved forward. From so that. the way we moved forward then was that we risk stratified those patients, gave them more treatment if they were poor risk, gave them the same amount of treatment if they were standard risk and we shifted the curves up. So we're going from 65% now up to the 80, 82%. Okay? Phenomenal. And then what comes next are the tools. The tools, how do we look into the leukemic cell? How's the leukemia cell behaving? How can the leukemia cell tell us something different? Because some of these patients are cured and we didn't know who these patients were. 
when we look at the cytogenetics, the chromosomes involved, we found even better sort of predictors of outcome. So that was a major achievement. So cytogenetics, there were some very good um, cytogenetics, like what we call a big word, high hyperdiploidy. They do incredibly well, 95% cure rates. And then 10 years after that, the whole area of uh, molecular response to treatment, where we look down the microscope, I can see one in a thousand leukemia cells. It's very inaccurate. But if we use these other tools I'm talking about, sort of things called flow cytometric analysis or polymerase chain reaction. Everybody knows about polymerase chain reaction from, from you know, it's used all the time in criminal cases. We can test your DNA. So we can go down to one in a hundred thousand, one in a million cells now where we can detect. And after uh, 28 days of treatment, depending on the amount of sub-microscopic leukemia in the bone marrow, we can tell a parent after one month of treatment that their child has a 95% chance of cure, okay? okay or we good. can say it's less. And if it's less, if it's a lot less, we can then do other things to bring it up to 90, 95%. Okay, so that's the, the all-important thing, I think, for a parent who's listening to this podcast there's a lot of reason to be very hopeful. I was going to ask you this question. I'm not sure if you already answered it, but is it possible to cure ALL? Yes. So uh, it is possible to cure ALL. So most of our children now in the region of 90% or more, 92% on the last trial, and I'll come back to that, are cured long term. So uh, if you are a survivor of ALL out five years, the chances are highly probable you're cured. So the further out you go from five years, the chances of relapsing become less and less. Now, we've had patients who have relapsed 10 years, 20 years out, but the vast, vast majority are cured. Yeah. They so don't have we, their leukemia. We can't offer promises but or miracles or promises to everybody, but no. there's very good reason to be optimistic yeah. and to be hopeful. And medicine is all about probabilities, right? It's not, it's not a purely exact science, yeah? Because yes, other things can happen. As we said, yeah. and each child and each patient yeah. is utterly unique. Is the hospital system in Ireland able to meet the needs of patients? Um, the answer is yes, in terms of uh, giving uh, those patients the right treatment at the right time. So if you look at CHI Crumlin here, it's the National Children's Cancer Service Programme. We don't have any waiting lists. Patients come directly usually through other hospitals around the country or even from I, I, their... I, I want to repeat it. I want to repeat that for the listeners. There is not a waiting list for this. You're straight in if your child is deeply unwell. Absolutely. And there's no such thing as a public-private divide within children, adolescent cancer. Everybody is treated exactly the same. That's also hugely important for people to hear because we know we talked about financial Mm -hmm. situation for some people and I'm sure you know there might be people thinking why don't we have healthcare why don't we have insurance it's not necessary every child is treated equally in the system absolutely yeah it's brilliant to hear that how does Ireland fare compared with other European counterparts do you think so if you look at our um, cure rates they're they're on par if not better than most of the other uh, units around the world I'm talking about units like in Boston Berlin, etc. If you look across Europe, there was a study done in 2015 published by the Oxford Group of Epidemiology. And if you looked at the 
standardised mortality rates for children with ALL were the best in the European Union of 27 states. That's got to be comforting for our parents who are listening to this. Hearing that from you has got to be, you know. And I think the reason for doing it that way are those results that came out. We were using the same protocol as our colleagues in the United Kingdom, but we centralised all of our children's cancer services in 2002 into Crumlin. And so we centralise all the expertise, all the clinical trials activity. So we've actually won out, really, by that uh, decision-making. This is a centre of excellence, is is that what you refer to Exactly, yes. Makes an awful lot of sense, doesn't it, to just bring all of the talent together. Absolutely, absolutely. A think tank, essentially, for each child. Um, What would you like to see change in the future to support children and adolescents with childhood cancers? So the biggest thing is to understand the biology of the cancers, as I was saying earlier on. We understand the biology then we can be smarter than the drugs that we're giving at the moment. In other words, we can use more targeted therapies, less toxicity. Immunotherapies, less toxicity. Are they on the rise, immunotherapies? They are. They're on the rise. These are the big kids on the block now. Um, We've started our CAR T-cell program, our chimeric antigen receptor T-cell program here, which really offers hope where hope was never there for multiply relapsed patients. We can pull them back into remission and get them cured as well so and targeted therapies so that's one area new therapies the other area is more patients on clinical trials so the new program for the country is not just children up to the age of 16 but i'm in charge of the adolescent young adult population up to the age of 25 and they are a group of patients that have fallen between the cracks basically Mm -hmm. their clinical trial activity is much less than the younger children or even the older patients, and we want their services centralised as well, not into one centre, but into three centres, adult centres, St James's, Cork and Galway, working with us here in CHI in Crumlin. So it's going to be this network of consensus for all of these patients that's going to get more of them cured. Can I ask you a question? If I was a parent and somebody suggested to me a clinical trial for my child, I, I it brings up a lot of questions. I'm just a lay person because... You think, oh, it's a trial. What do they know? Do they know enough? Do you see it as a positive? Would you encourage people to take a clinical trial if they were offered it? Yeah, so uh, trial is probably the wrong word. Yeah, it's, I think it's it is. It's a little bit misleading. It's sort of, it's emotive as well. It's a bit misleading. But when I talk about a clinical protocol or a clinical trial, they're synonymous. And what we're offering in the present clinical protocol or trial is going to be better than what we've just completed, Okay. So in 2003, we had a protocol finished in 2011 and it showed for the first time ever we can stop all of the, you know, intensification treatments if we have a certain molecular signal in some of these patients. We did that across the United Kingdom and Ireland. It was a fantastic trial. So the next trial was UCAL Ireland 11 and that showed even more, uh, you know, hope in terms of getting more of these patients through. And our new trial, it's called All Together, All Together O2. It's across 14 different countries in Europe. And it's not going to just go up to 16 years of age, it's going to go up to 44 years of age because we believe that the adults with ALL can benefit from what we did with children in ALL. We're good at ALL in children because it's the commonest cancer in under 21 year olds. So we're good at it and that's what we want to bring to these 14 countries across the European Union. 
I can tell that you are very passionate about what you do and you're optimistic. You're very optimistic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I would hope in my lifetime we will redefine what we call cure. Cure being, you know, people say if you're alive at five years or 10 years and you're without your cancer or without your leukemia, I want to redefine that. I want cure to be alive, but with also well-being, proper well-being, proper health. Because a lot of our children and adolescents who have been treated in the past who are deemed to be cured now have other chronic toxicities that we've given them from the chemotherapy. We want to try and get rid of that by using the new approach, immunotherapies and targeted therapies. Yeah, they, they are they are the gold, aren't they? Yeah. Immunotherapies. Um, I don't have any more questions for you, but is there, bearing in mind that this podcast is for the pe- the parents of kids who are going to come into this hospital what message what do you want to say so yeah so the future as they say in some of the adverts is orange the future is really bright and why do i think it's really bright is we have developed new tools to understand what leukemia is and what other cancers are by understanding the biology then we can manipulate that cancer into doing what we want to do for that cancer for example there's a subgroup of leukemia now that used to have a 30% mortality within the first month of treatment called acute promyelocytic leukemia and we started to understand the biology of that leukemia we started to treat this leukemia with a vitamin called altransretinoic acid and more recently with a toxin called arsenic so these patients are now cured with no chemotherapy, but just the combination of arsenic and vitamins. So for the ALLs and for the other AMLs, we're going to understand the genomics of these diseases and therefore interfere with that genomic dysregulation to get those cells working again. So it's Crumlin CHI, fantastic place to come, full of interprofessional sort of... um, I can really vouch for that. I mean, sitting here talking to you, I've talked to the clinical nurses, I've spoken to the patients, I've spoken to Dolores and Des and Takira. I'm kind of blown away, if I'm honest, by the service that's offered, by what you do. It's filled me with hope because obviously the the system gets a battering. You know, the hospital systems in Ireland, we we like to bash it, but my God, the work that's been done here is exceptional. Uh, as you say, the dedication, and it's not just the nurses, allied healthcare professionals, it's down to porters, it's down to people who look after the charts. Everybody works in a team. This is a team sport. It really so is. It I really can is. see that. Yeah. And even as Kim said, we're more than a team, we're a family here. Yeah. Every yeah. single person you encounter seems to be involved yeah. in yeah. the journey of every kid that comes in the door. I know. And one of the, the great sort of um, positives for me are, you know, walking down Grafton Street or walking around town and you're being tipped on the shoulder by, you know, a young a young mother with a buggy, with a child, and she was one of your patients all those years ago. So that's what cure is all about. Yes. It's curing patients who go on to have their own children, who go on to have their own hiking with their kids up Kilimanjaro yeah. or Slevenamon, whatever you <laughs> want to go. Thank you. Thank you for your passion and your talent and your smarts. Thank you very much. Many thanks, Professor Smith, for this fascinating insight into how medicine is evolving and how new treatments are meaning that patients can be better treated in the future. 
So that's it from Leukemia Cast. I hope you have found listening to this podcast series valuable. I would like to thank everyone who's contributed to the podcast series. Special thanks to Kira, Dolores, and Des for sharing their personal experiences so openly and honestly. I would like to thank Pam Lannan, the clinical nurse specialist, who has shared her words of wisdom and is really central to the management of each and every child who walks through the doors of Crumlin Hospital. I'd like to thank Kim Murray, the social worker who helps families navigate through their journey of treatment, both psychologically and logistically. And finally, I would like to thank Professor Owen Smith for giving so generously of his time to give us some context to the challenges with each patient is faced with every day in our healthcare system in Ireland. But also, Professor Smith has given us hope that new treatments are constantly evolving and helping patients to be better treated all the time and into the future. And finally, to you, our listeners, we do hope you have found listening to this podcast series interesting, informative and of some benefit to you. If you have been affected by leukaemia, We hope that this podcast may in some way help you with some practical advice to better navigate life with a child with acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. Thank you for listening.